Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor, and here with me is my co-host, Eric. Hello. Welcome to part two of our exploration into the disappearances of SS Pacific and SS Arctic. Today, we will be discussing SS Arctic. Before we dive in, we must inform you, the story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the sinking of a vessel and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Please note before we begin that neither Eleanor nor I are mariners or experts in the field of maritime history, but we have done our research as best we can. We'll present the information as we understand it and with accurate nautical terminology. In today's episode, we'll be going off of the official known story for SS Arctic, which has more information and confirmation than her sister ship. Before we get started, we'll go over the basics of nautical terminology. The bow is the very front part of the ship, and the very back end of it is called the stern. The port side is the left, and the starboard side is the right. Propellers are sometimes referred to as screws. The hole is the metal sides of the ship. The keel is the very bottom of it, and the superstructure is the top deck, usually made of wood. Smokestacks, or funnels, are large tunnels on top of the ship used to direct steam and smoke away from the deck. Masts are large wooden poles on the deck of the ship, usually used to hoist sails or hold a crow's nest where crew members can see for miles around the vessel. Beam is a measurement that refers to the width of the ship. Thanks, Derek. Our story begins very similarly to our story last week, in 1847, with the same subsidy we were discussing. To remind everyone, Collins Line was created and given a U.S. Congress subsidy in order to try to get ahead of the Cunard Line once more. As of July 4, 1840, the first shipping line to really get into regular transatlantic steamship services, both cargo and passenger, was Cunard. Before the 1840s, the United States had dominated the transatlantic industry, and with the boom Cunard was experiencing, the United States looked to get back into the game with the Collins Line and her four paddlewheel steamers, SS Atlantic, SS Baltic, SS Pacific, and SS Arctic. Edward Knight Collins was the most successful bidder when it came time to represent the United States on the seas and take over a mail steamship company, which is how the Collins Line came to be on March 3rd, 1847. This agreement would see the Collins Line receiving 325000 annual subsidy from the government to run a passenger and mail delivery service between New York City and Liverpool. That would be $11.7 million in 2022. Last week, we learned the cost of the massive paddlewheel steamer Pacific to be $700,000 in 1847, and SS Arctic cost roughly the same. SS Arctic was the third of the four ships built, being built after SS Atlantic and SS Pacific with the same materials and becoming just ever so slightly more luxurious, larger, and faster. She was 284 feet long, had a 45-foot beam, and weighed in at a whopping 2,856 gross registered tons. She was also equipped with two side lever steam engines like Pacific that powered the two 35 and a half foot paddle wheels to turn at 16 revolutions a minute when at her full service speed of 12 to 13 knots. She was painted in the same black and red color scheme with a black smokestack with a red top and was just as lux and accommodations for her passengers as her sister ships. SS Arctic could comfortably carry 200 first-class passengers and 80 second-class passengers, once again neglecting the third class as a luxury paddle wheel steamer. 
SS Arctic was manned by 175 crew on her last voyage, so we will go ahead and assume this was the standard for the ship. She was built to be spacious and decadent, her furnishings and fittings being described as giving an air of almost oriental magnificence, with the woman's saloon described as a gorgeous yet beautiful apartment, brilliant with light as cheerful as a scene as the heart could crave. Sounds beautiful. Yes, I bet it was. Unfortunately, though, there aren't any surviving photographs of the inside of SS Arctic, but we can all imagine the 1850s architecture that was common of the time. SS Arctic was completed sometime in 1850 after her launch on January 28th of that year, and her sea trials were completed October 18th and 19th of 1850. On October 26, 1850, SS Arctic disembarked in New York City for Liverpool on her maiden voyage that thankfully went without incident. In the following years, SS Arctic, along with her sister ships, gained a reputation as one of the fastest ocean liners, regularly completing a transatlantic crossing in 10 days or less. In 1850, getting across the entire Atlantic Ocean safely in 10 days was practically unheard of. In February of 1852, she completed an eastbound crossing in nine days and 17 hours, which was incredible for a winter crossing. The Atlantic Ocean, already an untamed beast, can be squirrely and stormy in the winter months, making voyages longer. Quickly, she became the pride of her company, the Collins Line referring to her as the Clipper of the Sea. Eleanor, what's a clipper? A clipper refers to a fast sailing ship, especially one of 19th century design with concave bows and raked masts. Although this didn't conventionally apply to SS Arctic, clipper was also used as a nickname for fast ships. She didn't have a perfect career, however. On November 23, 1853, SS Arctic ran aground on the Burpo Bank in Liverpool Bay on a voyage from New York City to Liverpool. Luckily, she was refloated and taken into Liverpool, where she was repaired. There were no injuries or deaths in this incident, nor were there in her later incident on May 18, 1854, where she struck the Black Rock off the coast of the Salty Islands while returning to New York City from Liverpool. Once again, she was refloated and returned to Liverpool for more repairs. Either someone wasn't paying attention, or this ship has bad luck. Maybe it's a bit of both. And maybe it was. The bad luck continued for the Collins line. They were finding that SS Arctic and her sisters were beginning to actually cost them substantially more money in coal than they originally thought. The wooden ship's heavy engines put a strain on the wooden hulls, causing warping and damage that had to be repaired frequently, incurring large expenses for the company on vessel maintenance. In July of 1854, SS Arctic's engines were adapted, and according to the Baltimore Sun, the modifications were an invention of a Baltimore firm called Weathered Bros, and if successful, would reduce the cost of fuel by half, making the Collins Line's ships much more profitable. We have reached the collision and sinking of SS Arctic. Just a reminder to our listeners, what you are about to hear does detail a maritime disaster resulting in the sinking of a vessel and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised as we continue. Thanks, Eleanor. SS Arctic, captained by Captain James F. Luce, departed Liverpool for New York City on September 27, 1854, with 200 first-class passengers and 33 second-class passengers aboard, along with 175 crew. Of the passengers, 100 of them were women and children. Some notable passengers aboard were as follows. Mrs. Edward Collins, wife of the Collins Line founder, along with her children, 19-year-old Mary Ann and 15-year-old Henry Coit. Her brother and his wife also accompanied them. 
Another party was the Brown Banking family, son of the bank's president William Benedict Brown, his wife Clara, their two infants, and two of William's sisters. One of his sisters, Maria Miller Millie Brown, was actually friends with Captain Luce, and Captain Luce's partially disabled 11-year-old son, William Robert. The captain thought the long round trip at sea would do the young man some good. SS Arctic passed Cape Clear at the southernmost tip of Ireland early on September 21, 1854, entering the Atlantic Ocean at her top speed of 13 knots. The weather was clear and she progressed uneventfully until September 27th when she reached the Grand Banks off the coast of Newfoundland. Now, the waters in this area can be notoriously dangerous for a multitude of reasons. Firstly, this area is formed by a series of relatively shallow submarine plateaus forming part of the Canadian continental shelf, making the water here much more shallow than the rest of the Atlantic. Secondly, at this area, the subarctic waters of the Labrador Current meet the warmer northbound waters coming up from the Gulf Stream that creates weather systems marked by spells of mist and fog. And thirdly, as we all know, the waters near Newfoundland can be laden with ice flows. Despite the risks of this area, at the time, it was common for steamers to remain at maximum service speeds, even though the risk of collision was well known. In fact, another collision we discussed in this podcast, SS La Bergeon, happened around this area, as well due to mist and fog. However, the risk to passengers and crew was not the most important thing on the agenda at the time, especially for the Collins Line. It was very important to keep a tight schedule, Alexander Brown saying in a 1962 account that there was no room for overcautious shipmasters. On the morning of September 27th, as SS Arctic approached the Grand Banks, Captain Luce made note of the conditions. At intervals of a few minutes, a very dense fog, followed by being sufficiently clear to see one or two miles. Yikes, that sounds dangerous. It definitely was. At noon on September 27, 1854, Captain Luce calculated the ship's position at roughly 50 miles southeast of Cape Race in Newfoundland. Shortly after this, a bank of fog rolled in, and SS Arctic found herself lost in the fog. In the fog, the lookout saw the shape of a steamer quickly emerging at about 10 knots. At this point, things happened very quickly. The lookout gives the warning. The officer of the watch commands hard starboard and ordered the engine room to stop and reverse. The exact same commands we see Titanic's first officer give in 1912. Similar to the Titanic disaster, it is too late for SS Arctic to avoid the collision. At hearing this, Captain Luce races to the bridge, just in time to see Arctic get struck by the oncoming steamer SS Vesta on the starboard side between the bow and starboard paddle wheel. At first, Captain Luce assumed that the ship was relatively uninjured. However, he was unfortunately wrong. Most of the passengers thought that this was a minor bump at first. A slight quivering or vibration was reported, but it wasn't as though the ship was sent reeling like Essex was when she was struck by a whale. At the time, many of the passengers were gathered in the saloon prior to lunch, and some were engaged in drawing numbers for the daily lottery, based upon the number of miles traveled in the last 24 hours. So, with the evidence immediately apparent to both crew and the passengers, they assumed SS Arctic was in no danger. The steamer that collided with SS Arctic was the SS Vesta, an iron-hulled, propeller-driven French ship that was used by a major fishing operator to ferry its employees between St. Pierre Island and a French territory off the coast of Newfoundland. To everyone on board SS Arctic looking on from the deck, 
They thought SS Vesta was fatally wounded. Captain Luce initially assumed the bow of the Vesta seemed to be literally cut or crushed off for a full ten feet. His initial reaction of believing his own ship was practically untouched led to his next decision. He decided to attempt to help the Vesta, ordering his chief officer, Robert Gourlay, into one of SS Arctic's six lifeboats. Wait a second, only six lifeboats? Yes, only six for the entire vessel, and he ordered one of them lowered away to head toward the Vesta. At the same time, SS Arctic circled SS Vesta, trying to assess the damage and figure out the best way to assist. Gourlay's boat was quickly in the water, and a second was being readied by 2nd Officer William Balham to be lowered toward the Vesta. Before this could happen, Luce rescinded and noticed that the Arctic was listing. As well as the list, there was a huge change in the paddle wheels in the water, indicating potentially serious damage. Instead of lowering a second lifeboat, Balham was ordered to take a closer look at the point of impact on board the Ar Arctic to assess the damage. During his inspection, he found debris from Vesta's iron stem and anchor from where it had impaled Arctic's wooden hull. This created substantial holes about 18 inches just above the waterline. Two breaches were found below the waterline, with large quantities of water flooding into the Arctic. The Vesta at least had a watertight compartment with doors that could be closed to contain the flooding. However, SS Arctic's hull was open from bow to stern and could continually flood. The mood aboard SS Arctic began to shift from concern for SS Vesta and overconfidence in their wooden paddle wheel steamer to anxiety as the news of the collision spread among the 233 passengers. The four pumps on board were deployed and were working at full capacity. Meanwhile, Luce attempted to stem the bleeding by passing a large canvas over the ship's bow. He hoped that this could be fastened over the holes in the hull in order to lessen the intake of water. But unfortunately, the bits of iron from SS Vesta tore the canvas to shreds. The ship's carpenter began stuffing the breaches with mattresses and other materials he had on hand, but the holes were then too far below the waterline to be reached without drowning. It was at this point that Luce realized the ship was in danger of sinking, and he decided to make a mad dash for the nearest land while the Arctic was still floating. Cape Race, the nearest land, was four hours away if the Arctic was able to continue moving. This decision meant that they would be abandoning the Vesta, but Luce assumed that the Vesta was going to founder soon, and that if they stayed behind, he would be sentencing his crew and passengers to the same fate that he assumed SS Vesta was facing. He made a half-hearted attempt to signal to Gourlay out on the singular lifeboat bobbing in the water, basically leaving the men out in the boats to fend for themselves. Luce ordered full steam ahead, away from the scene of the accident. A few moments later, SS Arctic plowed over a lifeboat that had been launched from the Vesta, killing all but one of the twelve occupants in the lifeboat, as they were primarily crushed under Arctic's paddle wheels. The sole survivor, a fisherman named Francois de Sennet, only managed to survive because he leapt from the boat and was hauled aboard Arctic by a rope. So far, the evacuation has been chaotic at best and fatally ignorant at worst. The water level in Arctic's hull, unsurprisingly, continued to rise and it outpaced the pumps. Eventually, Arctic was not moving forward by 1 p.m. and the boiler fires were extinguished to avoid an explosion. As we know from past sinkings we've discussed, when cold water meets a hot boiler, it can cause a spontaneous combustion. Far from land and with no help nearby, Luce made the decision to abandon ship. 
In accordance with maritime regulations at the time, which we all know did not require adequate lifeboats for everyone, SS Arctic had been equipped with six steel-constructed lifeboats. With the absence of the one Gourlay and his crew were in, there were five left, with enough seats for 150 people. This is well under half of the people left on board, but enough spots for all of the women and children on board. Under the guidance of the quartermaster, the women and children were placed in the port guard boat. It started out orderly, but as the boat filled, panicked men and crew rushed to the boat and filled it to capacity. The boat was lowered into the water, and despite having orders from Captain Luce to remain close, it quickly paddled away. On board the sinking SS Arctic, unrest quickly evolved into full-blown panic and devastation as it became apparent to everyone left on board that there were not enough seats for everyone left aboard. Just as we see with the Titanic disaster, filling lifeboats to capacity was not of utmost priority. The port quarter boat was filled with around 12 women and 5 crew as it was being ready to lower until panicked crew members rushed the lifeboat and a chaotic melee ensued. This caused the boat to be upset, spilling all but three occupants into the sea. Everyone that hit the water eventually drowned. On the other side of the ship, Lucet ordered 2nd Officer Balham to launch the starboard guard boat and proceed with it to the stern, where women and children would be passed down into it, theoretically. No sooner than its launch, the lifeboat was swarmed by panicking men who leapt into the water and clambered into the boat. All but one of these panicked men were crew members. With his boat now unfortunately overtaken with crew, there was no room for the intended women and children and Balham rowed away. The port quarter boat had been flipped back over and despite Luce ordering it, filled with women and children, the women were tossed aside by men and crew that cut the boat away with it only partially filled. Three of the five remaining lifeboats were now away from the Arctic, leaving behind many scared and doomed passengers. That's disgusting. Even at this time, it was understood crew put the lives of their passengers ahead of their own survival, and their blatant disrespect for the rules would surely spell death for many. While Captain Luce was distracted with futile attempts at maintaining order, Chief Engineer J.W. Rogers and other engineers quietly snuck onto one of the remaining lifeboats to take it. When others questioned them, they insisted they needed it in order to make a final attempt at plugging the leaks and anyone who didn't accept this sorry excuse or attempted to board the lifeboat was threatened with firearms. This includes women and children. Pathetic. Agreed, Derek. After these cowards loaded the boat with ample food and water for their own survival, they left with the lifeboat only at half capacity, occupied exclusively by engine room staff. This left behind one boat for everyone else on board, which was around 300 people. Of the officers, only Captain Luce and 4th Officer Francis Dorian remained aboard with most of the crew and other officers already cowardly abandoning their vessel. Wanting to give as many people as possible a chance at survival, Captain Luce ordered the hasty building of a makeshift raft. The force and main yard arms, various beams, spars, and other wooden artifacts were lowered where Dorian, in the remaining lifeboat, supervised the building of the raft as the artifacts floated around him. Despite Dorian trying to keep everyone calm and ensure the building of the raft, the final lifeboat was rapidly overwhelmed. To save the boat, he cut it loose, leaving the final terrified crowd to scramble aboard the half-finished raft. Among those who made it into the final lifeboat was fireman Patrick Tobin, who later recounted, It was every man for himself. No more attention was paid to the captain than to any other man on board. 
Life was as sweet to us as to others. SS Arctic was sinking rapidly, and all of the lifeboats were now gone. The deck littered with terrified and doomed passengers. Captain Luce knew the ship was lost and instructed a young trainee engineer from Washington, D.C., Stuart Holland, to station himself at the bow and fire the ship's signal cannon at one-minute intervals. He was trying to attract the attention of nearby ships to hail one for assistance, and even in the ship's final moments, Holland remained at his post and bravely continued up until the deck sank out from under him. He did not survive. Captain Luce refused to save himself, stating to second officer Balham, the fate of the ship shall be mine. When the captain could no longer lend any assistance to his ship, he and his son took post at the starboard paddle box and waited for the end. At this point, many could see the writing on the wall and huddled together, weeping, reciting scripture, and singing hymns as they clung to the doomed vessel. A few still clung to their survival instincts and were taking any furniture that could float, chairs, sofas, doors, stools, anything, to try to save themselves. At this point, Holland was still operating the cannon. A waiter on his first transatlantic voyage, Peter McCabe, later described what he saw. Several persons were floating out about on doors and beds. I seized hold of a door which had been taken down to save passengers and went into the sea where I left the door and got up on the raft. A great many persons were trying to get on the raft. Among the number who were on it, I saw four ladies. What a harrowing sight. Definitely. And as the ship sank, the raft smacked into the hole and tore a piece of the raft, spilling those occupants into the water. After this, McCabe took an inventory of who remained. 72 men and four women, either on the raft or clinging to nearby structures. Around 4.45 p.m. that day, four and a half hours after the initial collision, Holland fired the cannon for the last time as the Arctic sank by the stern. As the ship sank, it was estimated at least 250 people remained aboard SS Arctic. According to Paul Gran, who was in Dorian's lifeboat, as the ship settled into the water, they heard one fearful shriek and saw the passengers swept forward against the smokestack, and then all was over. Captain Luce was tightly holding onto his son as he was dragged deep down by the suction of the sinking vessel, and when he broke the surface, a most awful and heart-wrenching scene presented itself to my view. Over 200 men, women, and children struggling together amidst pieces of wreck of every kind, calling on each other for help and imploring God to assist them. Such an appalling scene may God preserve me from ever witnessing again. A section of one of the paddle boxes rose to the surface, delivering a glancing blow off the side of his head but killing his son immediately. Despite the shock of what had just unfolded in front of him, Luce clambered upon the paddle box along with 11 others. These 12, along with the 77 on the makeshift raft, endured two days of survival. While Dorian's lifeboat was rescued by a Canadian bark called Huron, and Balham's lifeboat was rescued after landing on the shore of Newfoundland's Avalon Peninsula. The fate of the three of the Arctic's lifeboats is uncertain. No traces of the occupants were ever found, although Gourlay's empty boat was recovered in mid-November of 1854, and the empty port guard boat washed ashore at Placentia Bay in Newfoundland in mid-December. Immediately in the aftermath of the sinking, outrage spread down to the Collins Lines offices in New York. The details were not clear, and many did not know if their loved ones had survived and were outraged at the loss of the Arctic. After inquiries and interviews with survivors, historians estimate the most likely number of survivors to be 88 people, of whom 24 were passengers. 
Without accurate passenger and crew lists or accurate surveys done to determine who survived, it is impossible to give a 100% confident answer on deaths to survivors. It is said that the death toll can be no lower than 285 and conceivably as high as 372, though inflated numbers of 500 or more are entirely inaccurate. After the disaster, Captain Luce retired from life at sea, rightfully traumatized from what he had experienced. Articles were written on what lessons could be learned regarding passenger and crew safety, but little reform actually happened. It wasn't until RMS Titanic sank 58 years later that reform for more lifeboats and better procedure was strictly enforced. White Star Line originally had two ships named Arctic and Pacific planned, but changed the names of these ships last minute in order to be respectful to the survivors and victims of both Collins Line tragedies. What does this mean for all of us today? Luckily, crew members and captains nowadays are dedicated to the safety of their passengers. Granted, there will always be a few tragic exceptions, such as the sinking of the Costa Concordia, but for the most part, all crews are prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice in order to save the lives of others. Lifeboat drills are required before leaving any port, and there must be at the very least a seat in a lifeboat for every person on board, though oftentimes there is extra just in case. It is unfortunate that disasters like SS Arctic and SS Pacific had to happen for change to maritime safety to happen. But if we continue to learn from the mistakes of the past, we will be sure to not to repeat it. This episode hopes to remember those who were tragically lost in the sinking of SS Arctic and to honor the story of all those involved. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. If you like this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you like this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a five-star review as it does help us reach more listeners like you. Tune in next Sunday for the story of the infamous RMS Lusitania, a Cunard ocean liner that was tragically sunk in World War I and it consequently accelerated the United States' involvement in the war. Don't forget to check out our sister podcast, Slasher Saturday. Have a great week, and we will see you next time.